So have you ever had like a responsibility, an area of, um, you know, just a job in front of you that just was seemingly impossible, you know, something that just seemed so big, you didn't know how you were going to take care of it, how you're going to pay for it, how you're going to get that kid to college, how you're going to, you know, afford that, how you were going to get through college. You didn't know, like, how am I going to do this thing that's in front of me? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a story about a governor in Jerusalem. His name was Zerubbabel. And his job at the time that he was alive was to take a small remnant of people and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he had some money that had been given to him by a king named Cyrus to do the job. And he also had volunteers to go through the process of actually rebuilding. And through his leadership and uh, the high priest named Joshua, they got off to a great start. They rebuilt the foundation and they put an altar out and they started offering the sacrifices to God. But pretty soon the nations around them saw what was going on and came against them, began uh, arguing against them. They first tried to join them, then they argued against them, letter-writing campaigns, uh, and eventually actual acts of violence against them. And because of this opposition, uh, they hit the pause button on rebuilding the temple. They quit, basically. So for 15 years, the temple sat there in its unbuilt state, And after 15 years, God sent his word. When we're struggling to get going, God will send his word. And so he sent his word in the form of two prophets, a guy named Haggai and a guy named Zechariah, and eventually later a guy named Malachi. But the two at the time were a guy named Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai was very straightforward. He just, you know, would say like, Zerubbabel, build. Uh, Joshua, build. People, build. Stop doing what you're doing and and obey. Uh, but when uh, Zechariah came onto the scene, he w- had these visions and saw all these things. And one vision that he had was this vision of a lampstand or like a candlesticks or menorah, a really big one. That's what they would have inside the tabernacle or the temple. And connected to it were all these pipes. And the pipes led to an olive tree. And so what he was seeing was Uh, oil flowing from the olive tree through the pipes into the candlesticks so that the oil never had to be added to the candlesticks. The light just continually burned. In other words, there was always fuel for that fire. And then God spoke to Zerubbabel, the governor, and gave him the interpretation of it. He said, thus says the Lord, it will not be built, this thing that you're doing, by your might or by your power, Not by your human energy, but it's going to be done by my spirit, says the Lord. And the reason I tell that story this morning is because, even though it's been a few weeks, when we were in Romans 6, we were reading and studying the sanctification chapter of God's word. What that means is, we were studying the chapter of God's word that instructs us and tells us how to get engaged in the process of our own growth and transformation, and sanctification. And the target of our sanctification is Jesus himself. If you want to know where God wants to take you, he wants to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So here's what so often happens. We read Romans 6, and we study Romans 6, and it's like, okay, great. The Lord, he wants me to come into the sanctification process. Uh, We read verses like, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We considered things like, 
I'm supposed to take, there's like, remember the study about the castle and uh, there's an enemy outside of the castle called sin that wants to sit on the throne and it's going to get there by our bodily passion. So we take our bodies and we submit them or surrender them to God for obedience and slowly but surely we actually become slaves of righteousness. Like it's not, no, it's no longer a thing where it's like, I'm trying really hard and I want to be obedient. I'm just trying to get there. Uh, but it turns into a thing where actually there's a desire within. I'm actually a slave of righteousness. This is who I really actually want to be, a desire to be. I'm finding success in being this person that is more and more like Jesus Christ. It, it's a huge thing, though. And that huge thing can sometimes be discouraging. And what can often happen in the life of a believer is that we then dip out of a spirit-fueled life of consecration, and we turn to human effort-styled consecration. And that human effort style of consecration is called legalism. And legalism will suck the joy right out of your life and right out of your heart and ultimately will either lead you to a place of great pride where you look down at every other believer or a place of great discouragement where you feel absolutely crushed that you haven't measured up to God's standards over your life. And it's, it, you know, the energy to live the Christian life is just absolutely gone. So that's what Paul wants to talk to us about in this text today, and not just today, but in the next few uh, weeks. And here's what we're going to learn today, three things. We're going to learn, first of all, that our relationship with the law, a legal relationship with God, has been broken. We're done with it. So we're going to look at, look at that and study what that means. And then number two, we're going to learn that we are now married to Jesus. We're in a marital style relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's a love relationship is what we have going now with Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to discover that there's a new way to relate to God. And the, the old way was the written code, but the new way is called the, the new way of the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 6. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but then over the next few weeks, Paul is going to keep on unpacking all the way through chapter 8 what the new way of the Spirit looks like. So I'm saying all of that by way of encouragement because I know today, as I'm going through this, some of you are going to be looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about with this new way of the Spirit. Uh, because maybe you haven't ever been taught about it, and it's just not part of your daily experience or life. Uh, but that's okay, uh, because in the weeks to come, Paul's going to keep teaching us about the way of the Spirit all the way through uh, Romans chapter 8. You say, how do you know I'm going to look at you like that? Well, I know that because they looked at me like that at 7.30, and they looked at me like that at 9 o'clock a little bit. So I'm assuming, unless you guys are all nailing it, there's going to be some of you that are like, I'm, not, I'm still trying to figure this out. Okay, so that's fine. We're on a little journey here together. Okay, so let's read this together. Uh, Paul started with a big truth. Verse 1, he said, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So what Paul announces here is that the law is powerful over all of humanity that's alive. Every person that's living, the law has jurisdiction over that person. And when he's saying that it's binding, he's saying it has sway over us. So you say, what does that mean? Well, you remember like when Jesus came, he actually defined for us what the law means 
more accurately than they even understood in the Old Testament. You know, he would say things like, it's written, you shouldn't, shall not murder. That's a good one, by the way. You know, like we just shouldn't murder people. Uh, that's, you know, I hope that's part of your code in life, you know. Like if you were thinking about it this week, you know, stop it. Don't do that. You don't want to kill somebody. Uh, but Jesus, when he came along, he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you. And then he went on to describe hatred and bitterness and evil speaking about other people. What he was showing us, in part, is something that Paul will say later. The law is spiritual. In other words, there are external things that we do, but it gets right down to the core, the heart of who we are, our actual motivations and intentions. He would say, you know, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. That's good. That's right. That's true. But he says, but I say to you, it goes even further than that. With lustful intent, you look upon someone else, you've committed that sin. It's begun there within the realm of the heart. And so with that kind of statement, we can understand a little more effectively what Paul is saying there in verse 1, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. There is this righteous, pure, perfect requirement from God that none of us measures up to. We're through and through. We are under this law that proves us to be uh, law uh, breakers. So it has this strong uh, bond uh, upon us. But as long as we live, is what Paul says in verse 1. What he's going to tell us in a few verses, and we already read this, is that we died with Jesus. All right, So that's how the power of the law is broken over us. It's actually through our death. Now to illustrate that, Paul uses an analogy. I'm sorry if you've read Romans uh, 7, verse 2 and 3 as some kind of marriage text. It's not. Paul is trying to use an illustration about marriage to show us that we are no longer married to the law, but we are now married to Christ. So let's read it again uh, together. He says in verse 2, Again, using an illustration that every culture would understand for the most part. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So again, he's not giving like a marital suggestion here, you know. So if you're like reading this, you're like, oh, that's how I get out of this. Uh, That's not (laughs) what he's trying to say. He's just saying that, you know, this is the law that we understand. Uh, and and uh, if her husband dies, then she's released from that law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. And she's still her uh, his uh, wife. He is still her husband. And so she can't go live with another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the concept is simple. Marriage for life. Uh, if the husband dies, however, the woman is free to remarry. This is where Paul now applies his illustration in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So you probably noticed that Paul changes the illustration. In the illustration, the law is the husband, and we are the bride married to that husband. In the illustration, the husband dies, setting free the bride to now remarry someone who's alive. 
But in Paul's application, the law, the husband, did not die. That's because the law is still alive. But in his application, we died. When did we die? We died when we placed our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. When you received the gospel message. When that happened, you died with Jesus, we learned in Romans 6. You were buried with Jesus and you rose from the dead with Jesus. So at that moment, you died to the law so that you could be remarried to the Lord. All right, so here's a question that I have that I want to ask you guys this morning. Do you believe that at the moment of your conversion, when you became born again, do you believe that you spiritually, mystically, truly, every single way, do you believe that you died to the law, that a legal restriction, a legal relationship with God is no longer the way that you relate to God. Do you believe that? You should. It's what Paul is teaching us. But do you have that belief uh, in your heart and in your mind? And, and I want to talk about this for a second because this is really good news, that we've been set free from the legal code. And the, and the reason I want to talk about this is because I think we so easily want to pick the legal code right back up. Uh, Paul in Galatians, he writes a whole book urging a whole church in, in the region of Galatia, urging them to resist legalism. He says to them, how can you who began in the spirit, how can you think that you're going to be perfected by the flesh? He says you need to cast out legalism. You need to cast out uh, a lack of uh, liberty and you need to cling to, stand firm, he says in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But this is so often how we drift as people. We want to go back into a legal code before uh, God. So for instance, let me just illustrate this. Let's think about how this might work in someone's life. You come to Christ, you start walking with the Lord. You're, maybe somebody teaches you Romans 6. Maybe even just a few weeks ago, you're like, this is my first time ever studying Romans 6. This is cool. Okay, I'm going to be part of this sanctification process. I'm going to take my body parts, is what Paul talked about, right? In Romans 6, he got very practical, our body parts. He says you, you give your body parts over to God for righteousness rather than giving them over to sin for unrighteousness. And when you do that, you become a slave to God. So it's good. So you start going through that. You're like, okay, cool. I'm going to be a part of that. You start maybe doing inventory. You're thinking about your life. And maybe one moment you have a thought that you never had before. And you start thinking, you know, I feel like I am just spending so much time watching TV. It's just tons of time. And you start having a little conviction from the Holy Spirit about it. And you're like, you know, it's just a lot of time. It's just I'm kind of like wasting time or whatever. Maybe you're feeling like some bondage to it. And... You have this sense, I think the Lord is trying to set me free here. He wants to give me some freedom, so I'm going to obey him. So you do whatever the you know, conviction is. Maybe you get rid of your television, and, uh, or you know, don't, don't get mad right now. I'm not telling you all to get rid of your televisions. I'm a TV person, okay? So, but maybe that's what he's telling you. Some of you are like, do not be talking about my television right now. I can see it happening, okay? I'm not doing that. I'm not presenting a law, okay? I'm just saying, like, so you go, start going through that, okay? So you start going through that, and then maybe you get a little freedom. Like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. I like this. And then time goes on, and you start thinking to yourself, you know, everybody should do this. And you start 
proselytizing people, not to Jesus or the gospel anymore, but to lack of television. And that becomes your thing. And then over time, you're like all upset about it because other people are like, you know, I just, all right, you know, that's okay, you know, thanks. And your, your TV friends are all bummed out at you and everything. And then maybe after, maybe one of the things you need to think about is, you're actually just upset that you can't watch TV anymore. Like, maybe that's all that's going on, okay? <laughs> and you just want everybody else to kind of be bummed out with you, you know? So it's just so easy how we can slip into this. You start walking with the Lord, and, you know, you listen to teaching. Teaching is good. God gave, it says in Ephesians 4, God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. We need teachers in the body of Christ, all right? The role of an interpreter, it's an important work in the body of Christ. It's good, right? We should have teachers. But at the end of the day, the Bible is our standard. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. But you start growing. Maybe you get exposed to a teacher, a writer, a blogger, I don't know, somebody. And all of a sudden, their convictions, as they write them down, as they communicate them, they become your convictions, and they then become your legal code. And then you want them to become everyone's legal code. You know, so-and-so said we should live this way. I believe it. And so, you know, I, and then legalism begins to enter in uh, to our lives. Maybe at some point, you know, when it came to your finances, uh, you know, you began, uh, you started realizing like, you know, I've just, I have like this addictive thing. I try to calm myself or bring peace into my life by purchasing things, buying things that I really can't afford or shouldn't, you know, invest or spend money on. But I do it. It brings a peace into my life for a moment, but then it just goes away once I look in my bank account and I'm feeling, you know, all, all of that. But then I'm, so I'm going to go through the sanctification process. I'm going to bring this to Jesus and I'm going to start growing. And I, now I've got a budget and I've got some discipline and the Lord is actually changing me internally. But then that can turn into a, like a law that you begin to introduce. Like, I want you to all meet my friend Dave Ramsey. He's the greatest, you know, and like, you know, pretty soon, you know, it just can turn into something that is an extra thing that could have been a good thing that began in the spirit, but then begins to be perfected in the flesh, right? So we ha this is an area that I think we have to watch uh, out for. You know, some of you probably struggle. Maybe your mom or dad told you you would be great and that you could do anything that you set your mind to and that you're an incredible person and that you'll be a world changer. And now you're living under the pressure of that. Like you better change the world now because your mom and dad told you that your whole life. And so you're discouraged. You've come under the weight, perhaps, of a law that someone else has put upon you. And we just have to really watch out for this because I think that it's our natural condition. It's where we want to go. You know, in maybe a way to illustrate this would be when the Civil War began, there were advantages that the, the North had over the South. Bigger army, more money, things like that. But there was one really big advantage that the South had. If the North just looked down there at the South and said, you know, it's going to be way too much work to go after you and try to bring this rebellion to an end and reunite the nation. It's going to be too much work. 
If they decided that, then the South would have won without lifting a finger. They would have got what they wanted. They would have had their own nation. And so it took work to go down and to fight that war in order to reunite the nation. And I think that's a good way to illustrate what it's like with legalism. Our natural position is going to be to get into a legal relationship with God. And what Paul is trying to announce to us and will continue to announce to us is that the legal relationship with God is over with for believers in Christ Jesus. It's totally finished. It's an absolutely done uh, reality. And, you know, I know that some people say, well, I don't think legalism's really that big of a problem in the church, in the body of Christ. And maybe, and, and I understand the, the, that sentiment because it is sometimes disheartening to perhaps look around at the church sometimes in the United States corporately, universally, and feel like there seems to be like some apathy there and maybe, you know, a lack of zeal for the Lord and things like that. But the reality is we just have to look back at church history and you look into the dark ages and you you just try to find pockets of believers that believed in grace that believed in justification by faith you had so many believers that just were clinging to law and outward form and restriction so it it, i mean it, it killed not just decades or centuries but beyond that and so we've got to really watch out is, is what I'm trying to say. So the beautiful first truth that I'm trying to announce today from what Paul is saying in verse 4 is we uh, have died to the law. That is not our relationship with God anymore if you're a Christian. Amen? Okay, just say amen. It'll, I'll keep going then if you just give me some. <laughs> just keep talking. Okay. Okay, secondly, he says there also in verse 4, because here's the thing. You might be wondering, like, if we're, if we're not in a legal thing with God anymore. There's no governor. There's no speed limit. There's no restriction. There's no law. What's that going to produce? There's got to be some law. Right? That's what we might be tempted to say. Well, here's what Paul gives us. Something more powerful, more life-transforming, in any law, he says, verse 4, Romans 7, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. He's taking the marriage analogy and he's applying it to our relationship with Christ. We died, so we're no longer married to the law, but in Jesus, it's like we're married to him. We're in that kind of, that brand, that level of relationship with the living God. Now, in one sense, this is still something that's going to be uh, realized yet future. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband to present you future tense as a pure virgin to Christ. Or Revelation 19, verse 7, that's where we read of the marriage of the lamb, which will come at that time because the bride has made herself ready or and his bride has made herself uh, ready. So we know in one sense, our full marriage to Jesus is yet future. But right now we're in the betrothal, uh, engagement, kind of pre-marriage kind of time uh, with uh, the Lord. Now that has strong implications 
for our relationship with God, that it's more of a marital love relationship than it is a law legal kind of relationship. Because if you think about that, you just think about some powerful ways that that influences and informs the way that we make our decisions before the Lord. You know, like Christina and I, we're we're married. We've been married for almost 15 years now. And, uh, you know, one of the things, because like there's a law that binds us. You know, we signed a document. We submitted it to the governing authorities. It's on file. We are legally married. But I don't wake up every day thinking about that. I'm not sitting there going like, you know, oh, what is my legal requirement? You know, I, do I have to, you know, hang out with you? Do I have to, you know? And so often that's how legalism sounds. What do I have to do as a Christian? What is the bare minimum requirement that I have in this relationship with God? Uh, that's not the language of love. That's not the kind of thing you want to say to your spouse. Like, hey, I was just hoping we could talk. Like, what is the, the bare minimum that I can do and still be married to you? <laughs> you know, like, that's not what you want to do. Love says, like, I love you. You love me. I want to lay down my life for you. I want to serve you. I want to be a blessing to you. I want to care for you. A, a love relationship says we're together, not apart. In togetherness, I mean, you think about it maritally, Christina and I, you know, we joined our finances, we joined our life, we lived together, there's no line in the middle of the home, like, that's your side, this is my side, like, we're together, we make decisions together, we spend together, we uh, calendar together, we do, we build a life together, and to think about that in our relationship with Jesus, like, he, he wants to do this together with you and me. He wants to be involved in the process of decisions and finances and priorities. And so when we think about it like this, it's like, man, I'm set free from the law, but I'm in a marital version of a union uh, with Jesus Christ. I care about what he wants and what he desires and what he longs for. Uh, in uh, my life. So that's just kind of a powerful way, I think, to be thinking about this new relationship uh, that we have with the Lord. A great Old Testament book for you to maybe consider if you just want some extra homework would be to read the book of Hosea because Hosea was a prophet who typified God's heart for the people of Israel. And what I mean by that is God looked at the people of Israel, especially at that time, as people that he wanted to be in a marital relationship with, marital union with. But they were falling head over heels in love over a false god named Baal at the time. And so God went through the process of saying, a day is coming where they will no longer say, my Baal, but they will say, my God. They will refer to me as their husband in one, at one point. But in order to communicate that to the people, Hosea married a woman who then was unfaithful to him, so unfaithful that she took a job as a prostitute. And Hosea pursued her in her rebellion, brought her back into his home, and said, now you will live with me. 
Now you will be with me. You will no, no longer go out and give yourself to these other men. You will be mine. And that was supposed to be a picture of what God was doing for the people of Israel. You've gone out and you've prostituted yourself, but I want to bring you back into marital union with me. So just think about your relationship with the Lord in that kind of way. It's like a marriage he is desiring you, longing for you. He wants to be together with you uh, in all of this. And of course, the thing that's so mind-blowing about all of this is that he, like, he wants this. Isn't that incredible? It, or, I mean, it should be. Maybe, maybe you woke up this morning like going, I'm fantastic, and the Lord should want a relationship with me. But it should be a little bit astounding. Like, you, that's what you want. Somehow I bring you joy. Somehow I bring you delight. You want to be in relationship with me. So powerful. All right, now, the line right after that line, you know that we've, we belong to another to him who's been raised from the dead. The line right after that line is actually a line that people kind of have some conversation about. Because the question is, is Paul, is Paul continuing the illustration? And it seems to me like he is. Like he said, you were married to the law, but then you died. So you're not married to the law anymore, but then you rose from the dead. And then when you rose from the dead with Jesus, there was only one that you could marry, Jesus. He's the one that rose from the dead. So now you're united with him so that you might bear fruit to God. And so the idea is that he's continuing the illustration. What kind of fruit or what kind of offspring will come from your union to Christ? And what he says here is a natural byproduct of a relationship with Jesus for a believer is fruit unto God. Fruit unto God. What is fruit unto God? It's totally opposite from works. It's totally opposite from legal code and human effort. It's fruit. It's something that happens just naturally and beautifully. And really, you could put the fruit in three distinct categories. Converts. People coming to Christ through our lives. Attitude change inwardly. Thought change, mind change. And then uh, actual change of actions and life. Now, the, the tricky thing is, is that you can try to work your way to those things. But the only way you really get there is to relationship your way to those things and have the fruit uh, of those elements coming out uh, of your life. All right, so he wants fruit. He's looking for fruit. And uh, this comes, again, as I mentioned, through this relationship uh, with Jesus. Let me just read to you what Jesus said in John 15, verse 4 and 5. I, I quote this often, but I think it's very powerful for us in our experience with the Lord he said to his disciples, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and in a few verses later, Jesus actually said, and I'm saying these things to you so that your joy may be full. When a person discovers a relationship with Jesus that leads to fruit, their, their joy becomes full. Uh, because a legalistic thing never has joy. But 
a fruitful relationship with Christ leads to joy. And the thing I like to remember about Jesus when he said that in John 15 is that he was actually walking to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, be arrested, and ultimately die on the cross. And he was not giving like a, you know, hey, here's like a, I'm going to give you like a precious moment, you know, here's something to like put in your diary kind of thing. Like abide in me, it's going to be so precious. It's not that he's looking at a group of men who are going to have to go out and start the church, preach the gospel, wage war, experience persecution. And he's saying to them, if you guys abide in me, if you have a relationship to me, you are going to bear fruit. You're going to do stuff. But if you don't, the fruit won't come. Because apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. So that's the kind of relationship we have uh, with the Lord. Okay, let's look at our third thing briefly. He says in verse 5, Because while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, so that's what we used to have, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what we're under as gospel believers, gospel Christians, is we are under not the old way of the written code, but we are under the new way uh, of the Spirit. So we are serving still. We serve the law. We're still serving. We're serving the Lord. We're serving in, he says, though, the new way of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. Instead of human effort, we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon them sometimes to do something great, like win a battle, defeat a giant, something like that, prophesy. Uh, But they didn't have the Spirit living inside of them. In the Old Testament, they would have moments where God's presence would go before them, like on Thursday mornings with the men uh, we're studying that. We're seeing in the book of Joshua that God is going before the people of Israel. That's what they had in the Old Testament. But he still was not living continually inside of them. Okay? So, but the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they promised that a day was coming where God would give a new heart and that he would transform and he'd put his spirit inside of people. And in other places in the New Testament, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, we learn that the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit. In other words, it's God's way, the Father's way of saying, uh, you're mine. Uh, I'm coming to get you. You belong to me. Uh, You're my property. I put my spirit inside of you as the down payment. So we now, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit of God Through our conversion, our new life, we're born of the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God now living inside of us. It's a beautiful uh, reality. And the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Okay, so this is not, uh, an it is the force in Star Wars. Okay, so we have something way better than that. We have the third person of the triune God living inside of us. He has a will. He has desires. He can be grieved. He will convict, he will remind, he will teach. He is within us. And he is longing to lead our lives and also give us power uh, to overcome. There's an old poem 
that says it this way. It says, do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And the wings that the gospel gives us is the Holy Spirit. He comes in within us and empowers us and strengthens us to live uh, this life for and in him. So the new way of the spirit versus the old way of the legal code or human energy and effort. That's what Paul is alluding to. Again, he's going to talk about this in the next couple of chapters. But if you just think about this, how does this work? Like... I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I'm sure a lot of you are uh, overthinkers. Any overthinkers here? Again, I said no show of hands. Put them down. Okay. Uh, but that was quick. You weren't overthinking it then. There it is. Uh, that's one thing I don't have to overthink. I am an overthinker. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I know what that's like. You know, just thinking and thinking, kind of getting like tied up perhaps in some of your thoughts. And so often, those thoughts are contrary to what God says uh, about us, what God says about someone else, God's power, what God can do in someone's life. So often, the thoughts of man can lead to unbelief rather than belief, trust in self rather than trust in God. So, in human effort, I can say, no, that's not, that's not right, that's not right, and that's not true, and I can, in human effort, try to change my mind. And it'll last for, you know, 10 seconds, 10 minutes, half a day. But will the inward belief and thought actually really change? That can only be done through taking thoughts, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, obedient to, obedient to Christ, arguments obedient to Christ, to, to take them captive in obedience to Christ, and to watch him actually change the way that I think. Okay, So the, the human effort is like, stop thinking like that. But the, the new way of the Spirit actually transforms the way uh, that, I, that I think. Like I said earlier about spending and finances, money, the human effort legal code, you know, you can get on a budget and you know, try for a little while. You know, I, I heard one store owner who said that, you know, when times change for people and they run out of money, six weeks, they'll change their spending patterns. But after six weeks, even if they don't make any more money, they'll go into debt to go back spending the same exact way. That's how deeply entrenched our patterns can become. Through my own effort, I can change that for just like a little bit. But through the new way of the Spirit, I could actually have a totally different relationship with my finances. Paul said it in Philippians chapter 4 that he'd learned the secret of contentment. He said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be poor and I know how to be rich. A lot of people don't know how to be rich and they don't know how to be poor. He says, but I've learned the secret in both. In either state, it's to be content. And that's where Paul said, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he wasn't telling us that we could dunk uh, on the basketball court. I could do everything. I could dunk if I want to. I that's just been my own personal ambition, I guess. But that's <laughs> uh, yeah, not what he's saying. He, he was saying in that context, I know how to be content in any state. 
That's the new way of the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can do that kind of thing in a person's life. Media consumption. We're like a screen-oriented, like we're just dominated by them, aren't we? The old way says, I got I to figure out a way to stop this. And there might be some practical things that would be helpful to you so that you're not continually confronting just the temptation to stare into a device. But the reality is the new way of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who must, at the end of the day, really, actually, truly, fully help us to overcome. Probably the greatest example of this, or one of the greatest, would be in our words. Because the tongue is an untamable beast, according to the New Testament. We say things and we think things about other people that can just be so just bad. And you could take the sweetest person that you might think would never, and you get their thoughts unfiltered, and it's like, whoa. We need the help of the Spirit. With our own human effort, we can for a little while, like, you know, like, I can go, I can go to that get-together, and I can just be so nice for 90 minutes, minute 91, get me out of there, you know, kind of thing. And then you get me in the car, and I'm just, or we can, you know, Lord, this is an area of my life. I obviously have this critical spirit that's so entrenched there. You've got to, by your spirit, pull this out of my life. You need to give me that victory. And here's what happens. For maybe those of you who are like really worried about being unshackled from the law, that it's going to create a people that are just behaving horribly. When you really get this relationship with Jesus, you begin to agree with the psalmist. Psalm 119 Verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I'm free from the law, but I actually love it. And the reason I love it now is because I can look into God's perfect word and standard and I can see where Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is taking me. That's how deep he wants to run in my heart. That's how deep he wants to run in my life. And I can see that I know know I'm not in that perfection state, but I can see that God is progressing me from glory and glory to that beautiful spot. So pretty cool to to consider. All right, so so that's it. Let me close with this this kind of uh, illustration. Um, in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you guys read that, Pilgrim's Progress? It's classic. Okay, In the book Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Pilgrim is on his way to the celestial city. Okay, he's a, he's a picture of a Christian. It's a picture of the Christian life. He's on his way to the celestial city, heaven. And on his way, he stops at the house of a man called Interpreter. And he goes into his house, and the house is covered with dust. Everything's just covered with dust. And as he's there... A person comes in, one of the servants, and starts sweeping. And the dust just starts kicking up into the house. And everybody's choking and coughing. And, and the, the broom and the sweeping made everything worse. Then interpreter calls in for another servant. She comes in with a bunch of water. And she pours the water out onto the floor and washes all the dirt away. And interpreter says to Pilgrim, that the dust is like our sin, our sinful nature. 
And legal code, the law, is like the broom. It just makes everything worse. It actually exacerbates the problem. It, it makes sin that much more intense. That's the role of the law. But the gospel and the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit is like the water that actually cleanses away and changes and transforms as we have this marital kind of relationship with Jesus. So that's what we're being given, and that's what we're going to be studying over the course of the next few weeks together through uh, Romans 8. Sound good? I'll just wait. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Your loving kindness is better than life. Please take away, Lord, that legalism and law that can so easily get in there. But not so we can be worse off or anything like that, but Lord, so that we can be remade into the image of of Christ more like Jesus. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Be honored, Lord, by what we do and say, where we go. Transform us internally, we ask. We thank you, Lord.